Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Mark Moyer. He is the author of Triumph Regained, the Vietnam War 1965 to 1968. And uh, like probably many of you, I am used to a particular narrative on the Vietnam War that it was a bad idea from the start, uh, that it was badly executed, that it was... Um, and that by uh, 1968 or 1969, the all the internal contradictions of our involvement in Southeast Asia had um, pretty much basically been demonstrated, and it was all downhill from that point. Mark, um, how much of that is right? <laughs> well, that's a great question. Really, almost none of it is right, and that's why I've spent so much time on writing Vietnam books and especially we've written them for veterans because they've really been the biggest victims of the, the false history, along with the people of South Vietnam who have been just treated horribly in all the histories. Well, two of my uncles are uh, were, were Vietnam combat vets, so I appreciate that uh, on their behalf. And uh, I mean, look, I mean, I think that there's been all sorts of really interesting drill downs into Vietnam. H.R. McMaster, who, by the way, had a really nice blurb on the back of your uh, on the back of your book here, sort of written, uh, sort of wrote the definitive um, kickoff, um, you know, the, the beginning of the war, how it got started, and all of the bad decisions that went into it. Um, and I, for the life of me, at the moment, Mark, I can't recall the name of the book, but I read that and I thought it was fascinating, and I thought it was you know a really interesting perspective. But he sees value in your argument here too, as well. Yes. Yeah. That book was a dereliction of duty. Thank and, you. Uh, yes. Yes. And uh, excellent book. And um, he, he looks at the period leading up to U.S. involvement. This book picks up in August of 1965, just after President Johnson has announced his decision to commit U.S. ground troops. So it looks at what actually happens in Vietnam. A lot of it looks at the military operations. And, and one of the big myths, of course, is that the U.S. military was was uh, stupid and ineffective and obsessed with statistics and not really doing much. But for this book, I was able to get a whole bunch of records from the opposing side, which hasn't really been done, and looking at how they saw things. And it turns out they actually viewed the American operations as quite effective. And uh, what General Westmoreland was trying to do with his search and destroy tactics uh, and we know, in fact, the North Vietnamese, rather than the Americans, are the ones who, by 1967, are uh, complaining that they've been deluding themselves because they've been claiming that they've been killing all these American and South Vietnamese that they really haven't been killing, killing basically because people in the uh, North Vietnamese command need to justify why they're taking such great losses. And the way to do that is, of course, say, well, we, we killed even more of those dastardly Americans. Well. Oh. Kind of sounds a little bit familiar um, in terms of what's going on in Ukraine, <laughs> frankly, with uh, with Putin trying to uh, justify the 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 losses there. Um, mm -hmm. But I mean, this is I mean, that that's sort of a typical thing. And, you know, I'm struck I'm struck by the, the, the fact that very simple fact really is that uh, we haven't had a lot of access to the other side's um, papers and the other side's records until until recently, I guess. Uh, we've been in a fairly friendly relationship with Vietnam, even though the regime is still at least nominally communist and nominally oriented um, uh, in in that direction. 
we've had some pretty improved relations with them over the last, I don't know, what, 20 years or so, maybe, that um, Vietnam has sort of seen America as at least a, a relationship of interest. Uh, why do you think that it's taken this long to get to those records? Well, some of them have been out for a while. And the North Vietnamese are still, or the Vietnamese communist government of today, is still a police state that doesn't allow anyone just to walk into its archives and see sure. the critical records. But they've published quite a bit. And actually, some of this has been out for a while, you know, including some of an earlier book I wrote called Triumph Forsaken. And uh, surprisingly, actually, a lot of historians have have just ignored these. And I think part of it is because they discredit so much of the anti-war narrative that came out of the war. And that's another interesting thing that happens in this period from 65 to 68, is that you have up until 67, there's really not much campus unrest. It's only in 67, you have this surge of opposition and no one's really dug into why is that. And so I've went around looking and digging and found that, in fact, that happens to be just when they change the draft rules. And so all of these baby boomers suddenly are told they're going to lose their draft exemptions when they leave college. And that's really what what launches this. And so I think you have to look at the war in the context of all these baby boomers trying to explain why they ended up circumventing the draft by one means or another. And so you had to recast the war as this terrible, awful thing. Well, I mean, that brings us to the point that you're, you've also raised which in this book, which is that America had some very good strategic interests in defending South, what was then South Vietnam. Um, having been involved, you know, with the, uh, you know, with the coup there, H.R. McMaster's book, again, Dereliction of Duty, sort of framed it as um, a sunk cost calculation that American uh, the American administration of Kennedy and LBJ figured that they were already involved in this and had to sort of, you know, keep investing in it. But uh, your book is arguing now that there were actually other very important strategic considerations in in keeping South Vietnam uh, from being overrun. Yes, and the rationale at the time primarily was the so-called domino theory that if South Vietnam goes, you'll see these other countries in the region fall. And that will come under attack later because in 1975, when South Vietnam finally does fall, that most of these other countries don't go. And so people look at it and say, well, look, the dominant theory was wrong. And But my point is that we don't intervene in, in Vietnam since 1975. We intervened in 1965. And the world's completely different in 65. You have uh, China at that time very aggressive in league with North Vietnam. That's not true 10 years later. Uh, you have uh, major changes in several of these countries. I'll highlight one, which I cover at some length in the book. Most people don't know about. But in, in the fall of 1965, just shortly after U.S. troops arrived, there's a showdown in Indonesia between the communists and the anti-communists in which the anti-communists end up prevailing. And the Indonesian anti-communists will later say that it was what America did in Vietnam that convinced them to make this stand because had the U.S. left, basically America would have lost all credibility in Asia. And so Indonesia goes on to be a critical ally of ours. And, and there still are today if you look at what's going on with uh, competition with China. Right. Yes. Um, and Cambodia, by the way, did fall. <laughs> Right. Yes, felt- that's something that's worth pointing out too, because people say, yeah. "Well, yeah, you know, the most of the dominoes didn't fall. 
yeah, but Cambodia did fall in, oh, 2 million people or so were murdered. But other than that, there wasn't much that happened. Right, exactly. Yes. No, I mean, I think it's, you know, I mean, it's OK. So the whole region didn't fall. But Cambodia was a was a bloodbath. Um, yeah. And, you know, and look, I mean, so was Vietnam. Right. Uh, when we when we made it clear that we weren't going to support uh, South Vietnam after the peace treaty, uh, South Vietnam was a disaster, too. I was a teenager when. You know, the so-called boat people started arriving in America. And mm. so, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people crossing the Pacific Ocean <laughs> trying to get to the United States. And uh, I was uh, I grew up in Southern California. A large number of them uh, were, um, you know, uh, lived in Orange County, which was close by where I was living at the time in uh, mm -hmm. Los Angeles County. So, I mean, you could see the impact. You could see all the different things that um, all the different humanitarian impacts of this even at the time you make you mentioned here that it didn't fit in with the narrative of you know the the the, the strategic considerations and i also want to get to the military position because that's i think that's probably your most important point here is how badly that's been misunderstood but there was sort of a defeatist attitude towards us and maybe it started in 1967 and certainly was there by the tet offensive um that uh, that sort of permeated American debate around the Vietnam War. And to some extent, I, I want to ask you this, to some extent, did the Korean War, this, this, sort of, this sort of frozen stalemate of the Korean War, did that have a lot to do with that? Or was it really just other cultural issues that, were, uh, that pushed that? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because at the beginning of the war, there is actually pretty widespread support. Now, one of the big problems with Lyndon Johnson is that he, he specifically avoids trying to sell the war to the American people. And he later admits that he did this because he was trying to push his great society, which is going to end poverty. And, uh, and so he, he didn't want to draw attention to the war. But that certainly causes some malaise in the country. And then you also have um, within journalistic circles, this uh, growing resentment of the government. But one of the things I also point out is that public at large is very different. They actually continue to support the war through 1968. But then, as, as we see now sometimes, too, that the elite media wants you to think that the whole country shares their opinion. And uh, it, certainly in 1968 in Vietnam, that wasn't at all the case. In fact, when the Tet Offensive comes, a lot of Americans are saying, you know, this is another Pearl Harbor. We need to go really bomb the North Vietnamese hard. And, uh, and Johnson himself is an interesting character because he doesn't actually bail out, as people think. He continues to increase U.S. troops there. He he's finally had a, a bit of a change of heart after spending most of his time listening to Robert McNamara, who really was a disastrous Secretary of Defense. Right, right. So this brings us to the military position, right? Because you're going to the Tet Offensive, and and um, and that maybe one of the most misunderstood. <laughs> outcomes um of american combat right is the tet offensive and what the american position was your book of course 1965 to 1968 but you're arguing in your book that actually america was succeeding in its mission in vietnam at least through those years and you know from what i've seen in in other analyses of this is even even past that um it wasn't until as you say, the American media was able to really sell the idea that this was that there was no winning this war 
that our position in Vietnam deteriorated mostly because of a lack of morale in, in regards to the war at home. Mm -hmm. Yes, and it's interesting first to look at how the Tet Offensive gets started because people don't generally understand that, that the reason the North Vietnamese launched this offensive, which we now know from the North Vietnamese side, is they are getting so crushed in 1967 that they've got to do something different. So they come with this idea of let's attack the cities and the people will rise up in support of us. And that turns out to be a complete debacle because the people don't rise up and they suffer horrific losses. So the, the media misrepresents that whole episode. Um, and then we have two more big North Vietnamese offensives in May and August of 1968, which people really don't know much about. Communists also tell us that those were even more disastrous. And they are really in desperate straits by October of 1968. And that's actually the point at which uh, the U.S. really shifts more towards the pacification program. General Creighton Abrams is now there. Uh, and they actually go into villages they haven't been to in a long time and found there's no communists left because so many of them have been killed. So the U.S. is in really a, a great position uh, at the end of 1968. And with the election of Richard Nixon, everybody's sure that uh, you know the cause of anti-communism is in good hands. And it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, Richard Nixon, the great anti-communist, um, ends up uh, going wobbly on this, but not at first, right? And this is probably beyond the scope of your book, because, of course, Nixon doesn't take office until the 1st of 1969. But, I mean, he's the one who has the secret bombing campaign that widens the war. He's the one who is at least initially trying to throw everything he can at this. Uh, even if it's beyond the scope of your book, uh, Mark, a little bit. And by the way, while I've got while I've got the screen, I'm just going to hold the book up here. I mean, this is this is the book right here, Triumph Regained, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. And you can see that this is a significant, a significant analysis of this. Uh, why? What happened with Nixon? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and why did this why did this um, go sideways under Nixon? Yeah, that's an excellent question. In fact, last week I was in Southern California. I spoke at the Nixon Library, which I think you can see that on their site, and also at the Museum of the Republic of Vietnam, where you have a lot of the South Vietnamese refugees and their families. And uh, you know, those questions came up in both places. And I think uh, uh, one thing also worth pointing out about the political scene at this time is on the Democratic side, you actually have Hubert Humphrey, who is resisting with the, the liberal wing of his party is saying basically a cut and run policy. So there's broad consensus in the country that the U.S. should stick it out in Vietnam and exactly how they should do it is a matter of dispute. But uh, and Nixon, I think, certainly believes that. And he talks privately about how he's going to threaten the North Vietnamese with uh, destruction to get them to agree to peace and thinks they're going to capitulate in the first year. Now, there's a couple of things that happened in 1969. Uh, where there's some North Vietnamese provocations and there's a North Korean shoot down of American aircraft. And Nixon uh, debates and his advisors encourage him not to retaliate. And he ends up listening to them. And then he later will say these are the biggest mistakes of his presidency because they undercut this notion that he was this tough guy. And so it will not be till 1972 that he really takes the gloves off and hits North Vietnam hard, which does bring them to the negotiating table. And then in the, the Nixon administration forces the South Vietnamese to go along with this peace, and he does he convinces them to go along by promising them he will bring American power back to hit the North Vietnamese again should they violate it. And uh, 
you know, there's a lot of questions as what would have happened had it not been for Watergate, because obviously Nixon's gone by 75 and Ford right. is, uh, has his hands tied. Um, and uh, I'm working now on a, the sequel to this book where I'm going to hopefully get a better answer to that question. I think uh, my impression thus far is Nixon did want to preserve South Vietnam. Henry Kissinger, it seems he was less likely to care about that, partly because, you know, they recognize by now the stakes in Vietnam are no longer as high as they once were. Right. And I'm wondering, too, and I'm, I guess we're going to look forward to your next book on this, how much um, Nixon's overtures to China might have influenced that as well. I mean, that was one of Nixon's great foreign policy um, achievements was reopening or well, opening links to to China, which is, of course, now under a large amount of debate these days, of course. But um, right. I mean, it's, a, it's going to be a fascinating question, and I'm glad that uh, you're already tackling that in the sequel. But uh, one last thing about uh, Triumph Regained. Um, I mean, this is uh, this is a, a well-researched book. You've you've done something that, uh, you know, a lot of historians that uh, that try to write in the immediate aftermath of great, um, great conflicts have difficulty doing, which is getting a full picture of, you know, both sides. And I think that the one exception that there may be in that whole field is William Shirer in The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, because we captured all the files and he had access to all of the Nazi, well, all the ones that could be recovered, all the Nazi files that could be recovered. But that's really unusual in, in terms of, you know, historical analysis. Usually mm -hmm. it does take decades to go through this. And obviously you think that this is worthwhile because you've written the book and it's being published and this is great. Do you think that it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of resistance though, to looking at this again and, and uh, uh, reconciling, the new information and realizing that we really missed an opportunity. Yes, the uh, and with when Triumph Forsaken, the previous book came out, there was a lot of resistance in from the academic and media worlds, and and I trace this back to the '60s because when you have this split and the baby boomers come along, basically some of them just go to Vietnam and then the others don't, and a lot of them find ways like faking injuries and illnesses to to uh not go and if you look at uh media and academia of the baby boomer generation almost none of them are vietnam veterans they made a conscious decision to exclude vietnam veterans when they came back and so they uh spun this narrative to support their decisions uh so a lot of them don't want anyone telling them that they were wrong about all this but vietnam veterans on the other hand have been highly receptive uh, many of them emailing me to say, I'm glad somebody has written something that squares with my experience in Vietnam, you know, unlike a lot of the other stuff, you know, Ken Burns is probably the most recent of the bad examples of, of how the war has been misrepresented, but, uh, I'm sure we'll get some, some resistance from some of these folks, or some of them will just try to ignore it and, and hope people don't pay too much attention to it. Well, that's what we're here for, <laughs> to let people know about this so that people can make up their own minds. And and yeah, I mean, this is the uh, I mean, this is one of the, the seminal moments of my life, even though I was too young to serve at the time. Um, but certainly the Vietnam War and its aftermath has colored a lot of American policy decisions um, in the succeeding 50 years. I mean, it's been um, 
it'll be 50 years this year, I think, right, for the um, Paris Peace Accords. Am I, am I correct? Yes. About that? Yeah, that's right. And it's also you know, part of our broader American heritage. And as we continue to see, you know, it's become increasingly popular for people in the educational world to recast the United States as this um, you know, horrible racist place that's always doing terrible things. And Vietnam is, you know, a weapon in that struggle. And so I think it's critical that we recognize, in fact, no, Vietnam was not some just crazy, you know, racist crusade to go kill people for no point. Then in fact, it was, there was good justification. And, and by the way, the communists who were fighting against kill 100 million people in the 20th century, which is something that also gets kind of swept aside. And you hear young people today talk about how great socialism is. It, uh, you, know, you need to remind them, well, this is actually kind of where socialism leads you. Indeed. Um, and that is a lesson that apparently we need to keep learning. There's a, there's a cyclical nature to that. And it's, it's disturbing to see uh, such a comeback for such a poisonous ideology. And maybe triumph regained the Vietnam War 1965 to 1968 can be part of that conversation as well. Again, we've been speaking with Mark Moyer. Here's the book. You can get this on Amazon. You can get it at uh, local booksellers. Assuming that there are any left uh, these days, <laughs> Yes. Um, uh, any websites that you want to uh, send people? Uh, yes, I have a website, markmoyer.com, M-A-R-K-M-O-Y-A-R.com. And I'm also on Twitter at, at Mark Moyer. Doing any uh, book signings, getting out and doing any of those uh, fun things that authors get to do from time to time? Uh, I'm doing some, yeah. You know, in the post-COVID area, there's not quite as much of that. I did get to do that at both the uh, the Nixon Library and the South Vietnamese Museum last week. We had had a strong turnouts there and uh, probably do some more events um, in uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, here in Michigan, at Hillsdale College, which I recently joined, which is one of the last ah. bastions of open, uh, you know, political pluralism that we have in the country uh hillsdale.edu if i remember correctly uh um, that is correct and uh you know uh the hillsdale conversations are uh, my uh colleague uh, hugh hewitt on salem radio network uh does those every friday um uh, dr larry arn and so yeah those are um hillsdale is a great uh, bastion of actual learning of academia as it's supposed to be um so uh congratulations on that i, I know that that's going to be a very um a very good uh, partnership there. Mark Moyer, thank you so much. And uh, maybe we'll get you back here to talk more about this book another time or uh, about the next book when that comes out. Okay, great. Well, thanks very much for having me. Good talking with you. Good to talk with you, sir. Now that the political infighting is over and the sausage is being made in the House, it's time for Republicans to unite with one cause and fight back against Joe Biden and his radical administration. The GOP has promised to investigate Biden family corruption, the border big tech censorship collusion, the origins of COVID, the FBI, and intel agencies' attacks on the American people and more, and it's time to hold them to those promises. Here at Hot Air, we won't let up on holding them accountable. We unapologetically fight back against the radical left and squishy rhinos in Congress who fail the people. We bring you the truth and go to war against Biden's woke communist agenda. But we need your help. By becoming a VIP for uh, hotair.com, you can help us in this battle for our country. Just look at the House Democrats leader, Hakeem Jeffries. He's another divisive radical leftist and his communist Sesame Street speech proves it. 
If Republicans don't halt the Biden agenda and conservative media fails to hold them accountable, it could mean the end of our great country. Join us in the fight. Become a Hot Air VIP member or a VIP Gold member today and use the promo code SAVEAMERICA to receive a 40% discount on your membership. Stand with us and fight to save America. We will never give up. And thank you very much.